2: What the hell have we watched?
0: What the hell have we done to ourselves, Kevin? Well, Kevin, over the last few weeks, we have binged Boomtown. Season one. Season one. First season of Boomtown. Boomtown? A 2002 TV series. Shut the fuck up. Boomtown. (laughs) It's broken us. Boomtown has broken us. Uh, A 2002 TV series uh, created by Graham Yost. Uh, that aired on NBC uh, began uh, its its uh, uh, inauspicious journey on September 29th, 2002, and uh, I guess ended. Uh, I guess the entire series ended December 28th, 2003. But we're only talking about season one right now. We're not ready to even look at season two. We need a break, a boom break.
2: You say that, but you know as well as I do. The second we finish this episode, we are going to go sit down. In front of the television, with our sunken eyes, and start watching Boomtown season two, episode one.
0: And then we're gonna watch season three, and season four, and no, season that's five. Some bad news. And season six. I've got and some tragic seven news. And season eight, and season nine. I've got some tragic 10, news. The Christmas special you. in between seasons.
2: There's only two seasons. And <gasps> season two only has six episodes.
0: Oh. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be going on this show. We'll be going on Mystery Me talking about like, oh yeah, season three, episode five. And people will be like, but guys, Boomtown was canceled 20 years ago.
2: I can tell <laughs> you something. Our eyes will be like bleeding.
0: We'll just be imagining the fucking episodes at this point.
2: I can tell you, I don't think I've, I've told you this in our private life. but while I was researching Boomtown, I did find out that there is a lot of Boomtown fan fiction. So if you...
0: Do tell. As a former fanficer myself, uh, I'm intrigued.
2: Oh, what kind of fanfiction did you write?
0: <laughs> Don't worry about it.
2: <laughs> Don't worry about it, and, and how? And how can uh, people find that on the internet? <laughs>
0: oh, no. nice try. Uh, so, so what was the... Was there a lot of Boomtown fanfic? Uh,
2: uh, the last thing I'll say is that your fanfiction is superb.
0: Oh, shut up.
2: It's classic. The Boomtown fanfic uh seem to be written by someone Anya uh weird it,
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe they're Irish uh,
2: a lot of it seemed to be about shipping particular characters and couples oh i
0: i i think that's nice i think you know if you no i i'm again i can't talk i'm i'm a fan i'm a fanfic writer from you know when i was in high school and even college so i respect the fanfic <clears throat> hustle. So good for them. And, you know, I think when there's, when there's a show that's sort of like, you don't, you don't quite, it doesn't quite go mainstream and it doesn't quite uh, like last for too long. Right. But the, it's enough to give you a taste. I think that's kind of the sweet spot for fan fiction. Cause then people are like, want to fill in the gaps. They want more from these characters, but they don't get it. So they have to do it themselves.
2: So I, I, I think what we said we wanted to do is we're very quickly remind people of the premise of Boomtown do a quick overview of the main characters and then go right into the episodes
0: perfect yeah yeah that's great so basically this is a uh criminal investigation police procedural show um but it takes that uh formula and it sort of at first turns this on his head by um taking a non-linear approach to storytelling so what that means is that we will see one event happen from character A's perspective and then title card, you know, new character B, and then we see it from their perspective. And sometimes that can involve going forward and back in time to kind of see different things from different angles. It could mean uh, seeing things from actually the criminal's perspective um, as opposed to just the people investigating or even the victims. And um, it sort of can give you an overview of a, a crime from a, more of a multifaceted uh, view than your standard uh, police procedural that's usually just from the perspective of the police maybe occasionally the victims but uh, so it you know kind of kind of uh set itself up as maybe a little bit more of a prestigious entry into the network police show category
2: in fact if you read interviews with the uh, creators of the show they were say very very self-congratulatory ways that you know this show was ahead of its time it actually, Shouldn't even have been a network show. It should have been a prestige show on something like HBO. They really, really love this show. They did. Yeah,
0: and you know, I mean, uh, uh, Akira, fairness, Akira Kurosawa did it first with what? what how do you? What was it? Uh, Rashomon. I, I guess something. You know that, that famous uh, Japanese. In film. fairness,
2: this this show, a bit of a spoiler, it has some terrific ideas
0: and some great acting.
2: Uh, and some great uh, characters. Uh, we will discuss how well it executed on those ideas and characters.
0: Yeah, this is think about this show as a meal with some fresh, delicious ingredients. But maybe maybe uh, we're going to see how the cook does with those uh, quality produce uh, you know, maybe maybe some things are good. Maybe some things uh, don't come off as well. And you know, maybe some things are just kind of this is this is 2002, right? America's reeling from 9/11. Everyone's trying to like, you know, uh, everyone's very sincere. I feel like at this moment, like this is a this is a sincere show, a very maybe a little bit overly eager sincere show. And um, you know, I think there can be good that comes from sincerity, but I think. You know, and I think we've seen that, like, you know, I, I've never watched it, but I, like the show Ted Lasso is doing really well right now. And I think people enjoy the kind of sincerity and the kindness that come from it. But if you if you have a little bit too much sincerity and you don't really know what to do with it, that can that can uh, lead to cheesiness and corniness. So
2: let's get to the characters. Uh, There's two detectives. Oh, And are- also
0: th- wait, we have to mention the, the first character is, of course, the city of Los Angeles. <laughs> That's that's the boomtown that they're referencing. I've never heard of L.A. referred to as boomtown. I don't know about you. I've only been there once, though, so maybe it's a thing. And I will say one thing about Los Angeles. I do appreciate that they didn't really dress Los Angeles up. This just looks kind of like a gritty version of Los Angeles. And it felt more authentic and real than perhaps like a law and order L.A. Let's
2: start with the two detectives. One is uh, Joel played by Mark Wahlberg whose no, name sounds no, familiar
0: no not Mark Wahlberg Donnie Wahlberg that's
2: right thank you
0: God from in sync
2: yes <laughs> from he the, plays he plays the, the, from tortured, the boys <laughs> he plays the tortured uh detective who has a tragic home life he is very intense is that I think that's what we need to say right now We'll learn more about him as we go through this. His partner is Fearless, played by Michael T. Williamson. (laughs) Uh, He's the cool detective who's charismatic and a lot of fun. Uh, There's two beat cops. Tell us about the beat cops.
0: Uh, The beat cops are Officer uh, Ray Heckler, um, who's kind of uh, maybe has a whiff of corruption about him. Kind of the street smart, kind of sounds like he's from the East Coast cop,
2: sort of. Supposed to be a bit bent.
0: Ben, but he's, he's smart. He's got street smarts, and then you have the younger Tom Tracotti, Tom Turcotte, something like that, and he probably has some of the least uh, less you know, character development out of the male characters in this. But he's he, just
2: the rookie. He's just learning their ropes.
0: He's a rookie. His dad works for the. His overbearing father works for the LAPD as well, and he's partners with Ray.
2: Who's the who's the ADA in this thing?
0: Uh, That would be uh, ADA David McNorris, who is hard charging, played by the always intense, always interesting Neil McDonough. You may recognize from Band of Brothers, also which a show that Donnie Wahlberg appeared in. So that's some Band of Brothers alum, including the creator, Graham Yost.
2: He was also uh, one of the villains on the, in the Arrowverse of CW shows.
0: He's excellent. I love this actor. He's got these he's got this shock of like white blonde hair, these crazy intense blue eyes, and this character is, is very hard charging, hard partying, uh, hard working ADA that's always trying to you know get the bad guys put away.
2: Seems like a bit of a sausage fest so far. Tell us about the women.
0: Well, yeah. Um, The ladies, well, uh, you know, in in terms of my profession, I'm a reporter. We have uh, Andrea Little representing the fourth estate. She uh, is a character who, um, unfortunately, is mostly defined by her illicit affair with the aforementioned ADA, David McNorris. But she's supposed to be kind of this tough reporter, and her background is actually, she's not working class or anything like that. She is uh, from a very highfalutin orange dynasty that sells oranges and real estate and stuff. So she's got a chip on her shoulder over that.
2: Other woman is a paramedic named Teresa, who is very devoted to her job and her mission of saving lives. And several episodes hint at an attraction between her and Joel.
0: And fans of uh, all you fans out there of once upon a time on ABC will recognize uh, this actress as Lana Perilla from, uh, from, She's the Regina, the uh, evil queen. And I love this actress. She does a great job in Once Upon a Time. She really has like a kind of ominous energy that she brings to that and a commanding presence. And I just wish, all I can say about this character is I wish they gave her a little bit more to do. But she brings a likability to it. that That's great.
2: So let's get to it. One of my uh, theses about this show is that it had a lot of great ideas I think the show was doomed by the network production schedule and the demand to turn out an episode every week. And so I feel it kind of lost its way, as we will discuss. Yes. But the episode that they were able to spend the most time on because of the nature of the beast was the pilot. You make a pilot to show what you want your show to be. You can spend a few weeks on it, and you show it to people. And then if it sells, then you go on to the weekly schedule. So the pilot is probably... The best example of what they wanted the show to be. Can you tell us about the pilot?
0: All right. The pilot centers around a drive-by shooting in an L.A. park. And uh, one little girl is injured. One young woman is killed. The reason why this gets so much focus is because the ADA's wife was there. And was a witness to the shooting. So he kind of comes in, does a press conference. He's trading barbs with the press. That's where we start. So we actually start after the the murders happened, but we're gonna go through and it's going to piece together in a very nonlinear fashion uh, what exactly happened, what the detectives are trying to do to, you know, get the guys, uh, what the guys who did it are doing and what their background is and what, what what exactly is going on there. So it actually takes maybe what would be considered a relatively simple case of violence, you know, that that hurts somebody in in, in the community. And they're telling it in a way that actually is intriguing and keeps you guessing and keeps the mystery going for a long time. So this absolutely, to me, was the strongest episode.
2: Yes. And the story it tells is not really new or fresh or original, but the way they tell it Makes it seem interesting and original. It's a strong episode.
0: It's a Yeah, and I'm, I mean, like, basically, should, I'll spoil it. It was this, like, spoiled, entitled white teenager and his uh, non-spoiled, non-entitled uh, black friend who, uh, you know, who kind of just got a track scholarship for college. And so uh, the white guy wanted to go and, and shoot this girl who dumped him or something. And so he and the black kid are in the car together driving around. So... Those are the two perps, right? And the black kid actually jumps out of a window to escape the cops on this one. So he dies. And there's a very poignant moment at the end of the episode where you're seeing things from him his perspective, and you've already met his grandfather who's, like, you know, trying to raise him. And you see the grandfather, like, throwing him up in the air dressed as, like, a superhero. And, like, he's, like, you know, trying to fly. And then you see him falling out the window. And it's, like, it's poignant. I mean, it's, it's a little... <laughs> As you could probably tell, it's a little heavy handed. It's a little over the top. It's pretty sentimental, but it is it's it has the rhythm allows it to have have this moment of emotional clarity that I I appreciated. And I thought that was I thought the sincerity there worked.
2: We met all the characters that we've uh, told you about, and they seem to be well created and interesting. And you want to spend more time with these characters and you want to spend more time in their world.
0: Yeah, the world to me in this episode feels fresh. It feels like we're not seeing the L.A. that you're used to, the Hollywood sign and all that shit. We're seeing the back alleys. We're seeing the areas that don't get as much attention, and we're seeing what's happening to real people there, and we're seeing the real people tasked with trying to, you know, fix problems and solve cases and keep the peace in the city. And, like, so it felt like a fresh take. And I really love the nonlinear storytelling because it really – Kept things interesting.
2: Things take an immediate turn for the worse with episode two, Possession. Uh, the main premise of this show, or this particular episode, involves a business where very, very rich people pay to go to a place where attractive women won't sleep with them. And I mean, you can do that at McDonald's. <laughs> what? What? You can go to McDonald's, see attractive women, they won't sleep. Is with this
0: you. what you've been doing at McDonald's all week? <laughs> Kevin, what the fuck?
2: But it, the idea that a business like this would exist just seems insane to me. If if you're willing to pay to be with attractive women who like tease you sexually a little bit, why not just go? You can find high priced call girls. And
0: yeah, and I'm going to compare this negatively to the pilot with the following The twist in the pilot. There's not really a twist, actually. It's a pretty straightforward story. There was a crime. One guy was more culpable. The guy was less culpable, ended up paying for it, and it's sad. This one, they really tried to lean into the twist, and here's the twist. In the beginning, thanks to the nonlinear storytelling, you think that uh, this kind of nerdy-looking executive-type guy is with a hot, young thang and that she's cheating on him with a younger guy. Now, what's the reality of this is that she's married to the younger guy. The executive is her client from that business that Kevin mentioned and that he gets jealous and kills the husband. Now, I mean, it's...
2: So the problem here is I think they they created the twist first and then tried to figure out how can we make people, how can we sell this twist? Oh, I know, let's have a business where people will go and role play and will pretend to be your wife and not have sex with you.
0: Yeah, and it, it feels much more like kind of the traditional, like, oh, the detective twist as opposed to, like, it it, it lacked the emotional core, and frankly, the twist felt a little bit stupid, and it wasn't, it, it there was no one on the victim slash criminal side to really kind of connect with or, like, be relevant in any way, or kind of just like, this wouldn't happen in real life, or sex workers exist, and you, you could do a story that humanizes a sex worker and shows maybe some of the fraughtness of dealing with stuff even if you're kind of more on a high-end situation for some reason
2: they wanted to be uh, us to be sympathetic towards this woman and i think they felt that if she was actually having sex with her clients instead of just teasing them then maybe people wouldn't be sympathetic
0: yeah and it's like we can sympathize with a sex worker who's doing her job and having sex with people you know like that doesn't make you a bad person and maybe people might not like what you're doing but we could still relate to the character yeah, I feel like it was kind of a, here. Here's a, here Here's herein lies a kind of common problem with Boomtown season one. They will set up maybe an interesting thing, like here's a sex worker that we want you to relate to. Here is a situation that might have really bad consequences for the characters, but they will swerve and make it the most like simplistic or vanilla or safe choice possible, which prevents it from being at all interesting. So it just feels bland as a result.
2: Uh, and another one of my theses about this show is related to the first one about the production schedule is that a lot of these scripts and episodes feel like they really, really, really need another, another few drafts. And in this one, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is the episode where the ADA, very intense, very intellectual man goes and he to get a, uh, to get a witness to talk, he threatens to beat him up.
0: Oh my God!
2: That didn't work at all.
0: Yeah, they're doing. They're trying to do this thing with Ada McNorris, where he is, you know, an Irish boy from Boston, and his dad was a fixer in the town, and he taught him how to box, and he's a hard drinking, hard woman and man, and it's like, oh Jesus Christ, I'm Irish. It's fine. There's alcoholism in my family. I'm an alcoholic. It's fine to to have that as your kind of storyline, but. Uh, with, with Irish people, because it is actually an issue, but it, it sort of it, the whole thing feels like we this guy gives off this like really intense, smart, sharp vibe, and
2: he's intellectually intimidating, he's not the least bit physically. No,
0: intimidating. you know, maybe like, and maybe if this character was backed into a wall or like had to fight, maybe then he'd be dangerous, but you don't feel like he's the guy who's gonna be using his fists to beat someone up or threaten them. You feel like he's a, like by the book guy and he will use the law to destroy, like when he's threatening the character who owns this sex work business, he is, you know, he could like in a, in a better draft, he probably could have just been like, I will cite you this citation, this citation, this citation, you will be underwater with money. Like you, you will, your business will go kaput. And so will you, you know, all your influence and prestige will be gone, you know, your wife will leave you because you'll lose the house. Like he could have he could have used the intellectual side of things to really ruin this guy's life. And instead we got him it, it just felt like a little boy coming out, like I'm gonna beat you up if you don't give me your lunch money.
2: And that's another huge problem with the show is that each character becomes whatever they need to be to be the easiest answer in that particular episode. If you need Ray to be kind of a corrupt cop, he's kind of a corrupt cop. If you need Ray to be a superman, who solves all the crimes, that's what he is.
0: Weirdly enough, Ray, this kind of, like, kind of goofy, kind of fun cop who's maybe a little bit corrupt but, like, has a good heart, he ends up, you feel like he ends up solving most of the cases. (laughs) Or at least a good amount of them. Should
2: we move on to the squeeze?
0: Yes. uh, I have
2: almost no memory of this episode.
0: Kevin blacked out. He he decided to follow in McNorris' footsteps and become a hard-drinking, hard woman and... (laughs) local lawyer um what's Indianapolis's? indianapolis what would our show be indianapolis's cop show nickname i guess naptown 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 <laughs> nothing happens here it's all these different perspectives of like nothing happening <laughs> it was really over the top i want to say before we move on i want to say something about the uh the intro song for this the intro song is Go look it up. Look a Boomtown intro song. It sounds like the song for like, if like Montana or Wyoming were having a uh like tourism commercial, like the Wyoming tourism board breaks out the expenses and gets a really fun song, kind of like a longing kind of Western almost theme with trumpets. And it's, and, but which I love, it's so cheesy. It tells you, Oh, this show takes itself so seriously. This is a look at the, Slice of life in Los Angeles, and it's going to tell you, you know, it's going to be life affirming. It's going to be sad. It's going to be everything. But
2: when we add the song here in post,
0: let's do it. Go for it.
2: down now you know exactly what we're talking about
0: so um i love that song by the way i pretend to play the trumpet to it whenever it comes on but um unless i'm you know unless i'm just so mad at the previous episode then i just sit there with my arms crossed uh the thing though about the opening credits is that it opens with a woman seemingly od'ing looking at the camera then it cuts to this picture of i think like a a missionary and a, a little indigenous child. And it's like, where are we going? And then it keeps bouncing around. You you see RFK, you see cops beating black people in Rodney the streets. King. Yeah. Rodney King. And it's like, okay.
2: And the RFK sequence is like right before RFK was assassinated in uh, Los Angeles.
0: Yeah. It, it, I get it, but it just, it feels very, like, it feels like you could have had something a little simpler.
2: We see a clip of a clip of the uh, OJ Simpson Bronco chase.
0: Yes, but in interspersed also, with all the characters looking very serious
2: and driving, they most of them are driving and, and like shouting into their little CB radio, except
0: the women. Uh, uh, Teresa is running with a bag of first aid kit, and Andrea, the reporter, is just staring off into space.
2: <laughs> kind of tells you about their roles in the show,
0: yeah. A little, little bit less active for the ladies here. Uh, the show. It's, it, the show had female writers, the show had people involved who were people of color, but I think the show is very obsessed with certain male characters and, and that very much shows.
2: We were astonished to realize the show had female writers. When we yeah. listened to the commentary track on one of the episodes... The creators, all men, were just rhapsodizing about a particular female writer.
0: Well, I'll say this about it. Like, a female writer could be mostly interested in in a male character. And that's fine, in my opinion. You know, like, that's who she wants to write and and really kind of focus on. But it's up to the people all together creating the show to make sure that your characters are, you know, all getting fully fleshed out. And don't have main storylines that are just tied to a man. Yes. You know? Um, and if it's a show that's more of a sausage fest, in my opinion, that's not I mean, not everything has to be everything for everyone. You know, I don't need a show to pander to me as a woman. like look at this cool action cop girl. She's gonna kick people in the ass. Like just write good characters. Just write good characters. And the female characters in this are not given a ton to do. And that's that's more that's that's unfortunate.
2: It feels like everybody in the creative part of the show, had a non-sexual or perhaps sexual crush on Fearless, Everyone and all the fearless. other characters suffer because of that. Well,
0: I would say that Joel is fleshed out quite a bit. He's good, and uh, Mc- David McNorris is. His, some of his writing is pretty problematic for me, storytelling wise, but he has some really compelling stuff going on. But. Um,
2: I'd argue that the McNorris character is not all that well fleshed out and that guess we, we, just, have the, we have the illusion that he's fleshed out because the actor is so good. I
0: think that's, I think you're right, actually. I think you're right. I take that back. He's so compelling, this actor. So, you know, you're watching him and you're like, oh, my God, this is so cool. But then afterwards, you're like, but wait, why did he do that? That didn't really make any sense. Or that didn't feel earned. So, yeah. It's, and honestly, that's kind of a, maybe a thesis that I have. I think sometimes the characters in general seem more interesting or more fleshed out or you, like you want to watch them just because the actors are really charming or smart or good or making interesting decisions that you want to see more of. And it's not really the power of the writing. Yeah. Like, for example, Teresa, I really liked her. She was kind of a badass, but she was very like sweet and nice. Like, like I like a I like a character that can be kind of like kick-ass, but also like very nice, very nice person to be around. But you know, she's not really given a lot to do. I think it was a lot of just her actor being charming. You know, like the actor being like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give this my all and I, I don't have a lot to work with, but... I, so, I mean, if unfortunately, I think a lot of that... I mean, Donnie Wahlberg knocks it out of the fucking park in this. He does a very good tortured detective without making it seem too cliche. It's it's like... He's dealing with some shit and... You can see that he's sad. But he's trying to do his job. He's trying to do his best for everybody.
2: He's sad because he and his wife had a baby that died under unclear circumstances. And subsequent to that, his wife attempted suicide.
0: Very heavy. Very heavy stuff.
2: Let's get to the squeeze. The
0: squeeze!
2: Episode three, the squeeze.
0: So a uh, basically this one has them charging a... Very fancy, uh, asshole-ish defense attorney, uh, with murdering his paramour, who's played by the mom from Zach and Cody, the sweet life of Zach and Cody, those two lovable blonde twins who live in a hotel in Boston and do shenanigans in the hotel. Their mom was murdered by this defense attorney. So it's really the sad life of Zach and Cody, but you know, I was just shocked when I saw her in this. I was like, oh my God. Um, and, you know, basically everyone's trying to get the defense attorney's brother to crack under pressure and confess that he, you know, is not an alibi for the defense attorney. The defense attorney's like, yeah, I was with him. You know, everybody kind of knows he wasn't. And uh, you find out that this dude was, uh, you know, kind of the fuck up brother and his defense attorney brother was much more prominent and, you know, the solid than him but like you know he's he's cracking under the pressure of you know knowing that his brother killed somebody because he actually helped bury the body at sea and uh you know it's just it's hard on him so everyone's basically trying to put you know they're trying to arrest his wife for shoplifting they're trying to like get his kid in trouble with drugs so they can uh, have leverage over him so that he will testify and they can go forward with this murder trial
2: I remember virtually nothing about this episode. It
0: was it was safe. It wasn't offensive. It wasn't bad, but it was it was a little bit boring. It wasn't. It was no. It was it, sometimes the 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 failures are a little bit more memorable than the safe ones. I would say
2: there's some pretty big failures coming up.
0: Oh yes, but first some uh, Steely Dan, because now we're gonna reel in the years with uh, reeling episode in in the four
2: years. is reeling in the years. There were uh, a number of cases in the nineties where people who got involved in radical organizations in the 1970s and like robbed banks or set off bombs, accidentally killed somebody, then went into hiding, and then were subsequently discovered. And that was the premise of this episode, is that there was an incident at a bank uh, 20-some years earlier where uh, a cop was killed, and they figure out that the woman who was involved with the gang the only surviving member of the gang is in the area and they go and arrest her. Uh, should we spoil the big twist? It's a very predictable twist. Spoil it. Uh, the woman who is arrested all throughout the episode, she says, we know I was there. I was one of the robbers, but I certainly didn't kill that police officer. I certainly didn't kill that police officer. I'm a good person. I certainly didn't kill that police officer. You know, many things are true, but one thing that's also true is I certainly didn't kill that police officer. Yeah. By, by the way, Incidentally, I didn't kill that police officer. And then the final seconds, we see she killed the police officer.
0: And uh, the police officer was this uh, this dude who was actually the partner of uh, Officer Tom's dad. Yeah, that's why he's so cranky all the time. I hated Officer Tom's dad. He seemed really toxic.
2: He seemed like a nice fella. No,
0: he seemed like a total asshole. He pointed a gun at his kid <laughs> as a little boy. In flashbacks, that's not okay. And then he gaslit his kid, saying that didn't happen. He's a bad dad.
2: Didn't Luke Skywalker like point a, a lightsaber at young Kylo Ren, and that turned out pretty well.
0: But uh yeah, the the squee uh, I'm sorry. The what was it called? The reeling in the ears. Uh Then there's a whole subplot where there's a there was a man who was arrested for the the bank robbery. And was wrongfully convicted, so he actually gets released after the woman is arrested. And there's an emotional scene where he sees her. He had a crush on her, so he lent her his car in the 70s, and that's when she went to go on the spree. So everyone connected him to the crime, and he's branded a cop killer and whatnot. Um, and and I thought he did a good job, and he had a, a kind of a poignant performance. But it was one of those things, you know. It was I thought it was a pretty good episode in, in retrospect. Like I for, at the time I was kind of like yeah that was all right, and now I'm like compared to some of what we're about to get to, that was actually pretty fucking good. The twist was very predictable at the end, but I like the idea of like going back in time and doing kind of almost like a cold case and like having it be connected and and seeing what people, what's happened to the different players in it over time.
2: Yeah, this one, this was episode four. We'd seen a, a bit of a decline in quality from the pilot and we were hoping for a rebound. So compared to the pilot, this was a weak episode compared to some of the stuff that's to follow. It's a gem.
0: Yeah, it's a gem.
2: I think the next episode, All Hallows Eve, might be one of your favorites.
0: Oh, I, don't, I never said it was my favorite.
2: One of your favorites. Do you like the resolution?
0: It had a good moment at the end. I thought it was overall pretty disjointed. So let's get to the pumpkin stuff first. Like, half of the episode is devoted to the patrol cops, Ray and Tom, who are trying to break up a ring of teens that are smoking weed and stealing glowing pumpkins on Halloween night from people's porches.
2: In this stage in the series they seem to think that ray and tom needed to do b stories that were allegedly comic
0: and so you have scenes like tom dressing up as uh the ghost face from scream and chasing after the car of teens and they're all screaming and he's jumping on the car and you know homeowners are packing heat to prevent their pumpkins from being stolen and it just goes on forever and it's just stupid
2: And the problem of doing an A story that's very serious where a character we care about is in serious jeopardy and then a B story where people are just being doofuses, it makes makes the people involved in the B story look callous and heartless because – they should be doing something else.
0: Yeah. They should yeah. be helping out. They should be helping us. So it makes us care less about them. And it also kind of tells us the episode doesn't really care about the serious thing going on. And it's not to say you can't have levity within a serious situation. I'm sure there would be some. I just think this isn't, this ain't it. This ain't it. Um, uh, and, then, and then the I guess the C plot is that the ADA, David McNorris and Andrea, the reporter, break up. Yeah. They break up. She dumps him. She doesn't want to continue having this illicit affair. Um, can, I just, can I just rant about her for a second? Go, what yeah. were you going to say first?
2: I, I was going to say in some of the reviews for this show, I saw people talking about the crackling sexual energy between the reporter, Andrea, and the ADA. I saw no crackling sexual energy. Anytime they were together, one of them seemed to be annoyed to see the other they didn't seem to like each other very much. Do we ever even see them in bed being passionate?
0: No, we don't see it. We, it's, it's all informed sexuality where they're like, "You're great in bed." And like, okay. It, it's it feels like I don't I don't even know why these people would want to hang out together, let alone have a passionate affair. I know hate sex is a thing or whatever, maybe you it's like a, you know, a uh, we're arguing, 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 and now we're having sex. But there didn't seem to be, like, any underlying level of affection or real attraction between these two. So it really it was a hard sell for me. And I think you pointed out, like, McNorris is always going on about how wonderful and amazing and beautiful and how sexy and wonderful and beautiful and amazing his wife is. And it's like, what about this reporter prompted him to cheat on her then? This is her beat. Her beat is crime, police, courts, all that stuff. So, sleeping with the ADA is a huge breach of ethics, you know, on her beat. And I would think that if we're, you know, she's as dedicated as a reporter as we're led to believe, I would think she would, it would have to be something that she was, a man she was so passionate about, maybe in love with, for her to do that and breach those ethics, you know, obviously. I'm not going to I'm not going to say that people reporters never hook up with sources. That's that's not true. People stuff happens. People are human, but this to me uh if you're doing this, you should you should request a beat change because I mean this is I mean this is just ridiculous. You're completely throwing out any professional credibility. You know what I mean? Like if this got exposed, it would be a huge scandal. I think it's kind of gross.
2: Yeah, it demeans your profession.
0: It demeans the profession. And again, when it does happen, it's a big deal and people get fired, you know, in this they're being so open about it. You'd think almost like her editors knew and were okay with it and, and I, that you would, you would get sacked.
2: And also he's given her scoops.
0: Yeah. And he would get sacked too, you know? Um, and if, if it was maybe a handle, like, it was like they had sex once and they both kind of regretted it, but they also both had this kind of bond over that. Maybe I could buy it, but it's an ongoing affair when the series starts, they break up in this episode. And one other thing I'll say about her is, you know, to me, seeing a reporter who's at, at a really prominent beat in a major city like LA do her job is interesting enough on its own to carry the character. You don't need her to have this affair with David. Maybe you could have it. So like they, they haven't had sex, but they have this weird kind of thing going on, you know, where they kind of maybe are attracted to another, like you don't, You don't have to have her completely piss away all her credibility, you know, by having sex. And it's like he gets other stuff to do other than be her paramour. But she kind of just feels like she's his paramour. And you never see, like, her editor barking at her to do something. You never see her freaking out because she's uh, got scooped by somebody else and maybe she's losing her touch. You never see her really have professional concerns. She shows up to kind of smirk and banter with the cops and give David life advice
2: even after the breakup she still seems to be very interested in him and his life and wanting to help him out.
0: I was like, "Oh, thank God they broke up cuz now we can actually see
2: her do her fucking job." What is the A plot in this episode?
0: Teresa, the uh the uh very nice, very confident paramedic is um taken hostage by a gang of guys dressed in cowboy outfits led by for all you general hospital fans out there led by the guy who played Nicholas Cassadine for years on the show. He's the main bad guy. His brother was shot during a robbery. They want her to save him. They're going to take her hostage and force her to save him. Uh, And they drive around. It's revealed that the brothers were like, failed stuntmen who came from the Midwest to make it big in Hollywood, but Hollywood chewed them up and spat them out. And he's giving all these speeches about that. And it's like, Oh God, all the cops are trying to find her except for Ray and Tom who are dicking around with the pumpkins. And, and the thing that was to me good about this and I'll, then I'll conclude it is that um, uh, at the end they're coming in to save her. Cause the guy's going to shoot her in the head, but then he kind of moves her into a car cause he realizes the cops are coming. He puts her in the backseat And instead of needing saving, she actually gets behind him and strangles him because her hands have been duct taped in front of her and and strangles him into unconsciousness. And I was like, that's great. Love to see that. (laughs) Like, and like, I, I, it was good. And then she treats him afterwards because she's a paramedic and she's trying to, you know, help him. And I was like, I dug that. I dug that she didn't need help in the end or she, she, she needed some help, but, uh, she got out of it herself and she, you know. Strangled this asshole because you're just it, like, you're he's going on this soul sob story. My brother died. Da, 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 da. Shut the fuck up, you suck. Anyway, are we ready to talk about what we're gonna what about, about episode six?
2: We've already talked about episode six. If it, we if we even start talking about episode six, we'll be here all night.
0: That's the freak, folks. Uh, that's the freak, folks. Uh, if you want to listen to our episode, just talking about the freak, which is the most batshit fucking boomtown fucking episode to ever boomtown then you need to go back and listen to it. It's in our feed somewhere. So just find it, listen to it, come back here. Uh, But we're not going to go into it again because that'll just bore you for those who have listened to it already. And for those of you who haven't, go back and listen. Seven.
2: I have Insured by Smith & Wesson?
0: Yeah. This one was a wacky one. I enjoyed this one. (laughs) It had a retail crime and retail's my beat.
2: And uh, this is one of the ones where Ray, who has been kind of corrupt, is suddenly depicted as being a great hero. Well, yeah. What happens in this episode? Well,
0: I mean, like, let's go. Like, he he's been kind of the snarky kind of guy who's like, yeah, you know, here's what you do. Like, he he he's guilty of planting evidence at some point. He's guilty of all these kind of bad things. I don't think this character would really fly in this day and age where people are much more skeptical about stuff like this. But you know, he's kind of like portrayed as the kind of sneaky guy with a heart of gold. But in this, he's super cop. Basically, he's up for promotion. His boss tells him, you suck. We're not going to, you know, you need to step it up. And then Joel, outside of this hostage crisis unfolding at a sports retailer uh, where all the employees are inside being held hostage, Joel snaps at him because he keeps going on and on about how um, the manager of the store played a cop on TV for a short-lived series, much like Boomtown, called Insured by Smith & Wesson. So much chastened by this outburst Ray volunteers to go in with Teresa to provide medical attention to a a woman who has been shot by the robbers she's pregnant so they need to get her out of there now the robbers allow Teresa to take the pregnant woman out of there but then they keep Ray hostage because they realize he's a cop
2: and then through various plot contrivances Ray saves the day with the assistance of the actor the former actor who's now the manager and the big twist at the end is that the actor was in league with the bad guys. I think this was about at the point during our rewatch of these episodes where very early on in an episode, a character would appear who we meant to be sympathetic to. And you would say, Oh, I bet they're going to make that character, the bad guy. And you were always right. I
0: was always right because they'd always pause a little bit and be like sketchy, you know, or somebody would say something that seemed insignificant and you're like, that's going to come up later. You know, why would they be making a big deal of that? That adds nothing to the story unless it's in retrospective. So it was pretty easy to figure out some of these ones.
2: And so one thing that is problematic about this for me is that Ray is the big hero in this hostage crisis, which involves a former celebrity. I think this would be a pretty huge news story at least within the city of Los also, Angeles. Also, he was
0: like tied up and tortured by the robbers. So he would get extra sympathy points in the press for like going through what he did. They forced him to call, almost call his wife and say goodbye. Like it wasn't a casual situation.
2: But yet a couple episodes later, uh, uh, his name will come up in a press conference and a reporter would say, oh, Ray? Oh, you mean the character that was involved in that corruption scandal a few years ago? Yeah. No, I mean the character who was a huge hero in this national story a couple weeks ago.
0: Yeah. It doesn't make any, the, the, the the media cycles don't make any goddamn sense in this TV series. Oh, I mean, what are people going to, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't focus on corruption. It's not a, it's not a moral or value judgment by my part, but I'm just talking about like, realistically, you know, the hero cop thing is going to, uh, definitely overshadow for the time being the, kind of complicated, money-changing, uh, potential fraud crime that his partner was involved in that might implicate, implicate him as well. Because the, the, the hero cop thing being held hostage by robbers is much easier to explain to the public, and they are probably going to be jazzed about that.
2: You could do a season-long arc about Ray finding redemption.
0: Yeah, you really could.
2: But you don't have that here.
0: You don't, it's, it, 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 he's, when he needs to be kind of corrupt and shady, he's corrupt and shady. When he needs to be a good guy, who's basically a hero who got, uh, maligned, uh, then he's that. It, it, and like, I feel like they could have done a lot with this character. Cause like, I, I love a good redemption arc. I love a good redemption story. And I also like kind of a sneaky guy, you know, but in this case, and like, maybe, maybe he. You could you could do something with it where you know he was truly corrupt or he, maybe he wasn't and he just he's more of leaning into that persona because it helps him get by but like they don't it's just basically whatever the plot needs him to be he is and that's that's a weak character yes I, I think the actor was doing a good job they had some phone moments with him. I always thought he did a good job making weird gym faces almost like <laughs> where he's like what the fuck's going on so I wanted to like it but there's no By redemption my gym there.
2: faces you're meaning...
0: Like staring, staring out. Like, not, he's not staring at the camera and b- breaking the fall, fourth wall, but he almost is at, at whatever ludicrous situations are happening because it's Boomtown.
2: Next episode's Crash.
0: This one was just. They were trying to do some Maltese Falcon bullshit. And you can imagine how well that went.
2: It was about insurance fraud.
0: It was about insurance fraud. Uh,
2: I think the big. Uh, takeaway from this is the story they were interested in telling is that somebody affiliated with the insurance company is a woman that uh fearless used to know and it seems like their relationship gets rekindled and the first time you saw her you said oh i bet she's the guilty party and she was
0: because everyone was hinting the boss the boss isn't gonna like this we gotta get the head of the snake in order to bring down the ring and like who is the only other character here
2: so it was very conventional kind of doll. I don't even know how much time we need to spend on it. Was anything yeah, I think
0: you- bounce on that. Um, the David McNorris Show. Uh, this is teenage girl gets murdered at a party, and David McNorris turns totally corrupt.
2: Yes, this is the ADA, who we've seen as being flawed but uh, a good person. He's seen as willing to make any compromise whatsoever to help his career in this episode, including letting... A person guilty of murder flee.
0: See, like here's the thing: he's hard charging. He wants to win. He maybe he's not always a good person, but he's always doing the right thing for the job. And and to be a prosecutor, you need to speak for the victims. So we've consistently seen him hew to that, you know, and 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 speak for the victims, even if his personal life is in shambles. He's doing what he needs to do for those victims, and this basically over the course of a conversation he allows himself to be convinced to go easy on this rich guy's son so the rich guy will donate to his boss's campaign and then his boss will make him DA when he's when he's mayor or whatever and it's like okay i'm fine with a fall from grace arc i'm fine like go ahead but like ray it it you need to build the bridge it feels like we built part of the bridge, but we're not able to get across unless you build the entire bridge with this. And I'm not, they maybe built half of the bridge here. Like we see that he's driven, but we don't see that he's dissatisfied where he is. We don't see that he wants more in terms of his career. We don't see that he wants power that he wants to be the number one guy. Um, We do see him get really mad when, you know, people get killed or people get hurt and he wants to go after the people who did it with everything he's got. So, you're giving us this information and then it's totally conflicting. I was saying to Kevin like maybe you could have had a situation where he really almost relates to the potential perpetrator and and maybe thinks he might be innocent so maybe he's a little bit more easy to convince for some, you know, for some shady deal that gets out of control, but to have it happen over one conversation and the way it did just felt like kind of a curveball. And it's not us saying we don't like uh potentially bad complicated characters, but this just felt like I wasn't sold on it.
2: And then at the end of the episode, in a fit of self-loathing, he confesses his infidelity to his wife who leaves him. And then he goes to the home of the rich person, this very prominent man, and he punches him. And he faces, in future episodes, no repercussions.
0: No repercussions. This is a major donor to his boss. It's a guy he just... Covered up his son's potential wrongdoings. It turns out the son was innocent of the crime, so it wasn't even a, you know he didn't even have to do this. I,
2: I think if anybody goes to somebody's house in the middle of the night and punches him, he's going to be arrested. There is going to be repercussions.
0: And this guy, this this David McNorris character, he, th- at this point, this starts his complete drunken spiral. He's he's going. Uh, he's, he's become a full fledged alcoholic by this point. And as I mentioned, I am an alcoholic, and I. They, I think they got some things right about their portrayal and I think they got some things maybe a little bit, maybe not wrong, but you know, cause I think it's different for everybody, but I, I do think some things felt a little bit cliched or a little bit like they kind of came out of nowhere for this character. And it would have been nice to maybe see something that we haven't seen a million times before. You know, the second he starts spiraling, he's spiraling crazy and he's, he's rambling and he's, he's, he's drinking during the day and he's doing all this stuff. And, you know it would have been interesting to maybe see more gradual a gradual slide because that's i mean that's how it was you know i mean it started for me and then it kind of accelerated but uh, maybe they were trying to say oh he's at the acceleration point of his downfall be- you know before he gets help but to me i don't know it just it felt a little bit easy and i would i would have loved to see i, w- I would have loved for them to be just a little more consistent with this guy's character cuz then we could kind of see what kind of alcoholic he might be Is he the kind of guy that's drinking in public or is he the kind of guy that's like hiding at home and drinking in the house and waking up really tired, but like trying to get his job done? Like you could do different things with it. And and this just felt a little bit on the nose to me.
2: Right. You've mentioned a couple of times that you're an alcoholic. I just like to uh, point out that you have not had a drink for 18 months.
0: Hell yeah, baby. I'm going to be getting my my second year chip soon. Yes. That's going to be fun. Yes.
2: Pretty exciting
0: go me <laughs> pretty, pretty impressive yeah and and like i i try not to be too sensitive when it's like you know like when an alcoholic is portrayed on tv because in my opinion it can look differently for some people like it can look different for different people um like my alcoholism is not necessarily going to look the same as like this hard charge in adas but um and i i think they got some they definitely got some things right i don't want to completely shit on them but um i just I never felt like we really knew this character beyond like like the cliched Irish Catholic stuff about him like trying to be different than his dad but becoming his dad. It's like we've seen this a billion times. It would been nice to do something a little different. I would have loved to see a character where he's actually continuing to do really good work even though his entire life is falling apart outside of work and that kind of continue makes him continue his spiral because he's like, I'm doing such a good job at work how could I be doing anything wrong? Right. Because that's how it gets you. You know, that would have been a little bit interesting. And it shows also how important his work is to him, where he's not going to, he's going to really try to make that the last thing that the alcohol affects. And then, of course, it eventually will, but, like, it's a slow decline. Give us a buildup.
2: Uh, the next episode is, uh, I don't even know how to begin. <laughs> it's, it's coyote. It is, uh, Bad I, w- shit. I would say it's an incredibly fascinating failure. I loved it. How, how would you describe this?
0: Weird PSA about how you shouldn't judge people with mental illness gone crazy. Uh, I guess I'll just spit it out. Um, A young man who Andrea knew in high school has lost his mind.
2: Should we start with the cold open?
0: Okay, let's start with the cold open. Uh,
2: A man uh, in a Ritzley area of uh, the city is out by the pool with his teenage daughter. He goes down the street to buy something at a store. It doesn't matter what. When he comes back, his daughter is missing, and there is a significant amount of blood. Yes. And uh, the officers soon find a crazy man in the vicinity. Yeah,
0: feral living, he thinks, you know, he's speaking in gibberish. He seems to be a psychotic person. So immediately everyone thinks that he did it. But there's a problem.
2: And They even find a dead body of a man. Yeah,
0: they find a dead body of the man near his den. Everyone's joking that he's a coyote man, yeah. but the problem is that the blood on the coyote guy does not match the type of blood that the missing girl has.
2: And then it turns out the coyote man uh, is a high school buddy of, uh, Andreas.
0: Yes. And he devolved into mental illness after losing both of his parents, um, and now lives near where he used to live, seemingly sort of watching over his family home. Because, can I give the plot twist? Yeah. Plot twist, he thinks he's his old dog. He's not a coyote, he's a dog man. And the creators even named the dog Nemo after the creator's dog. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably sitting there like, what the fuck are you talking about? But that is the episode, and um, as it turns out, uh, this gentleman, this coyote gentleman... Um, they, they they use Andrea and a psychiatrist kind of to tease out details about what happened. And um, a neighbor boy and his pal kidnapped the missing young lady because they wanted to torture, rape, and murder her. And the coyote guy saw this crime in progress and attacked them. So he killed one guy and severely injured the other to the point where his dick doesn't work. So he's not able to all this bad stuff to this girl who he has tied up in his basement and she fights back and in the process the cops are able to come in time and rescue her and then let's talk about the crazy last scene kevin
2: uh so this coyote boy dog boy is taken to a hospital for treatment he subsequently escapes uh the police tom and ray go to the home of the rich guy Hey, have you seen this guy who escaped? Let us know if you do. Okay, see you around. And then the rich guy and his daughter lay out a freshly cooked steak on the ground, ostensibly for Dog Boy to come and eat, because he was a good boy. He was oh, a good doggy.
0: Don't forget you hear a howl in the background. as <laughs> the scene goes to black.
2: And you say you saw someone say this show is as good as The Wire.
0: <laughs> oh! <laughs> All I can say to that is, woof.
2: <laughs> Boomtown.
0: I think with that one, it was, it was a fun, it was fun. I feel like if I, I don't know, like uh, I, I, I think it's probably, I mean, I don't, I don't know somebody who's dealt with psychosis to that extent. I feel like if I did, maybe I'd be offended. Cause I'd be like, I feel like this, they probably got stuff wrong. It was just so silly, but.
2: they presented the, the guy. He had limited language. And so he would say things that were nonsense and they said, well, no, he's probably telling us what we need to know. We just have to decode it.
0: Oh, and it all hinged on a Pygmalion line from uh, George Bernard Shaw. So for all you Pygmalion fans out there, this this, this is the episode for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I guess they portrayed the, the guy with mental illness as pretty sympathetic and as being a good guy who's just struggling with something that's beyond his control and you know that was good so that it it didn't feel as offensive as it could have been
2: and on the dvds this episode was just after the freak and i think compared to the freak this seemed very grounded very down to earth very yeah
0: like honestly i think if this had come before the freak i would have been like what the fuck and this would be the episode that i was going crazy over at first but after the freak i was like yeah you know i could see that (laughs) i could see that happening
2: Next episode, Monsters Brawl. Uh,
0: this one was stupid except for Neil Pat- Patrick Harris's performance.
1: Yeah,
0: Neil Patrick Harris, I'm going to say, good actor, does a really good kind of cold, smart guy, you know, act. In this, he plays a documentarian basically forcing homeless people to fight.
2: Ends in murder. Ends in murder. You've seen this story before. The one thing I want, I think we need to discuss about this episode is a key component to unraveling oh, everything.
0: Oh, yeah! I know what you're going to talk about.
2: Do you want to have the honor? No, no,
0: no, no.
2: Detective Joel goes to the home of Neil Patrick Harris, and he discreetly leaves on a bookshelf his 2003. 2002. I think this episode aired in 2003.
0: Oh, wait. You're right, baby.
2: Yeah. How dare you? The back talk I have to put up with.
0: <laughs> oh, wow.
2: He leaves his 2003-era cell phone on a bookshelf in the apartment. And 2003-era cell phones were not small. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the whole shelf collapses under its weight, so I don't know how the bad guys didn't see it.
2: He leaves it on the bookshelf, apparently in an open call to someone else so that that someone else, I think, it's fearless, can listen in on everything that happens in the apartment. And the only way this works is if nobody notices this big phone that's not there sitting on the bookshelf. It's absurd. He doesn't even try to hide it behind books or anything. I guess he you tried to hide it behind books, it'd muffle the sound. It's idiotic that this phone sits there on an open call to someone else for over a day, I believe, with no one noticing. And also does that tie up two phone lines, because now Joel doesn't have a working phone and Fearless doesn't have a phone. <laughs> so Fearless keeps it open all night to got get the sounds of them sleeping and stuff.
0: I mean and like we're supposed to believe that Neil Patrick Harris, who again does a great performance, but his character is supposed to be this genius and he doesn't even see a giant phone on his on, on the at the place where the detective was fucking around.
2: We live in a pigsty, and I think if someone came here...
0: (laughs) We stopped cleaning uh, ourselves and our home after watching (laughs) Boomtown.
2: Yeah, all we do is we just talk about the freak episode.
0: We we haven't eaten in days.
2: (laughs) We would notice. I think you would notice. You, the listener, would notice if someone left a cell phone, even a 2021 cell phone.
0: Yeah, if they bugged the house, that would be one thing. You need a warrant to bug obviously, but it, it was stupid. It was, it was a stupid episode. Um, and, and this, the next one was the one I forgot, you know, you didn't remember the squeeze. I didn't, I don't really remember a lot of Sinaloa Cowboys other than it was a meth deal gone wrong. And it was based on a Bruce Springsteen song.
2: And the Bruce Springsteen song is much better.
0: The Bruce Springsteen song. I'm not a huge Springsteen fan, to be honest. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't hate him, but I, it's not my thing really, but I I looked at the lyrics and they were poignant and I liked them. They were very poetic, poignant story about uh, two young people who come up from Mexico, two brothers, and one of them dies in a meth house explosion. And the survivor buries his brother and takes all the money they'd been saving. And like, there's this whole thing about like trading off, you know, like you have to almost sacrifice your brother to have success in America or something. And it's, it's it's, like sad. And I was figuring they go with something like that, but the story of the 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 Mexican brothers, one of whom was killed in a meth explosion, and this one gets almost so overshadowed by the wacky meth American people that it sort of just had no poignancy to it. You don't see the brothers like what their relationship means or what what they were doing previously or anything like that. So it it just feels like, okay.
2: Next episode: home invasion. This is oh my,
0: oh the, no.
2: This amps up everything to a crazy degree. There's a group of serial killers who do home invasions. And not only do they kill every member of the families in the homes, they also rape everybody in the home.
0: They had to go an extra mile here.
2: Uh, through some plot contrivances, they figure out who the next target is. And then they embed in the house with the, this family. And, of course, the man in this family, the husband in this family, the father in this family, he's dealing with terminal cancer. There's all sorts of life lessons and stuff there, and it's just, it wasn't good.
0: It just felt like they were really trying to sell you on on it, on a kind of almost a criminal minds approach of like, this is this isn't just a serial killer, this is the scariest serial killer possible. So it just felt a little bit, I don't know, it just felt a little bit like they were like, like one like a movie about a dog that the dog dies at the end. They were trying to, I felt like I was being manipulated by the crime in this. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And it was not it was not it was not thrilling or scary because the cops come in immediately and they I mean, the, with a home invasion murder case, like if you're watching a criminal minds or like a, a, a CBS police procedural, you know, the the thrilling part is like, are they going to be able to stop them before they strike again? There have been episodes of Law and Order like this where like maybe it's not the greatest episode in the world, but there is a suspense because you're like, OK, are they going to save those like that last family? Like, how are they going to fit the pieces together and figure this out? In this, they figure it out immediately. And then they leave. And then there's the, then, then the burglars are are in there and they're, you know, trying to kill everyone. And it's just like, it, it it like kind of approached it just from every wrong angle, in my opinion. And it, it sort of sapped it of any possible suspense. Execution, baby.
2: Execution has, uh.
0: Oh, God, this one.
2: This has a really idiotic premise, which must come as a shock at this point. This
0: one made me feel dirty.
2: Uh, A man is scheduled to be executed hours before the execution is to take place. He calls an ADA McNorris and says, unless you commute my sentence to life in prison, a police officer is going to be kidnapped on the streets of Los Angeles tonight and executed along with me. I can't imagine this happening. No. Do we just move the, on?
0: The only no, 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 no. <laughs> we need to talk. This one was maybe my the least favorite, one of my least favorite ones. The thing about this episode that really bothered me is I, I don't know the guy who is gonna the, this kind of master criminal. His name's Chronic. He's black. The whole thing felt like it was kind of just awkward. Did, like, how do I put this? The, the James Bond film Live and Let Die would have you believe that like, almost every black person in Harlem or New Orleans has a walkie-talkie and a line into the bad guys in Live and Let Die. And this kind of felt maybe it like had a bit of Live and Let Die syndrome. <laughs> all these, they're going to get up against all these black gang members, and it just felt like may, maybe that was chill in 2003 or whatever, but today it just felt like, and I'm not, I'm not. I'm not being patronizing. I'm not saying you can't have a black villain or whatever and have that be a really interesting villain or whatnot. This just felt so clumsily handled. And then these, like, long shots of this guy getting executed just made me feel really uncomfortable. It just felt very, like, creepy. It was a creepy episode. It made me feel kind of the. And then there's this whole stupid thing where you find out in this episode, I was excited because I love the show Band of Brothers, and there's kind of a Band of Brothers reunion. There's a really unpleasant guy. Who's a detective who was in Band of Brothers, and then there's a the 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 kind of loudmouth Italian kid from Band of Brothers who plays a, a cop, whose partner gets kidnapped, and you know he's obviously corrupt, and then you find out that he he sold his partner out. He like helped lure him into the place where he got kidnapped, and I just thought it was stupid. And then it ends with the cop who got kidnapped dying. So you're kind of just like, okay. I'm not saying you have to always have a happy ending, but it, it was just so, it was so clumsy and all over the place. And all this bullshit about McNorris and chronic going back and forth and matching wits and stuff. It just was, it was so uninteresting. Um, any actual criminal would know that this would never fucking work. And the governor's not going to give you a pardon to, you know, like it, cause that would just encourage uh, uh, fucking field day, open, open season on kidnapping people in order to ex- a
2: field day. Yeah
0: just stupid. I I I am I being over I I just I found this to be racist. I found it to be fucking stupid and I hated it. I hated this episode.
2: Okay. I fucking hated it. Stormwatch.
0: I don't even remember this one.
2: Stormwatch is the one where two police uh officers get killed and it turns out that uh it's is they attempt to foil a robbery. And it turns out the reason they were killed is because the robbers got warning that the police officers were coming. And that tip came from within the station.
0: (gasps) Who could have done it?
2: I think that's the storyline that's wrapped up in season two.
0: And you find out that the mole is the guy from the previous episode, the guy from Bandit Brothers, and they arrest him. And it's pretty pretty boring.
2: The next episode is a very special. One thing I
0: I didn't, well, one thing I'll say I didn't like about it, Joel is like, you know, his wife attempted to commit suicide you know his son's been traumatized by this whole thing and he ditches them to like go investigate this case and like i get that it's an important case but there's other detectives here for a reason and they give you time off for a reason so it just irritated me
2: the next episode is a very special episode of boomtown oh god it's called fearless uh it's uh Basically, the heart of this one is we learn that Detective Smith, fearless, was himself molested as a young boy. And he is tempted to go and exact revenge on the perpetrator. Uh, And we learn that his being molested caused him to lose his faith in God.
0: And I was really dreading watching this one because it just sounded like a very special episode and it sounded like they weren't going to handle it well. But I'm going to say this. I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Williamson did a really good performance. It felt like it stayed relatively grounded for what it was. So my expectations were so low, this actually surpassed my expectations, and I wasn't offended by it. I expected to, it to be, like, really bad, and I I thought it was it was fine. It was fine. There were some really cheesy moments, some really over-the-top moments, but generally it felt fine.
2: It's the kind of episode that ends with the main character who's lost his faith in God returning to church and a minister giving a sermon which explains in very plain on-the-nose language what the theme of the episode is.
0: Wouldn't it be funny if he had stood up and be like, I told you that in confidence, asshole! (laughs)
2: It needed more. Draft. If if you have a minister or any character explaining the theme so explicitly, you need another draft. Also,
0: there's so many passages in the Bible that you could subtly connect to anything, like anything, about like healing or finding the truth or whatever that you could have just had that, and it would have had a, a more impactful. You know, moment, and it wouldn't have been so fucking on on the nose. Would have been still pretty fucking on the nose, but I'm just giving I'm giving tips here. <laughs> that would have felt, you know, I don't know. It just the it, it the the show got so broad and storytelling, and and so um, it just kind of cartooned itself eventually.
2: Down to the last two episodes. All yeah. right. Blackout.
0: Blackout. This is the alcoholic episode. This is where David McNorris, the hard-charging ADA, who's now also hard-drinking, um, not hard-womanizing anymore because his girlfriend dumped him and his wife dumped him, uh, he gets really drunk and then thinks he he participated in a hit-and-run that left a homeless John Doe dead.
2: And he, he his instinct is to cover up the crime.
0: Now we're we're being led to believe this entire season that this man is an Irish Catholic who is a gutten uh, who is a glutton for punishment. He wants to be punished for his sins. I guess he doesn't want to just go to fucking penance or something. He just wants to he wants to get hurt. He's like one of those medieval guys who walks around with a whip hitting himself. So so like the the ultimate high for him in a way would be to go in with his car and say, "Look, I was driving drunk last night. I have blood in my car. you need to test it see if it's matched that John Doe because we've been we've been led to believe that that's basically all he wants to do. yes. And also that he's a man that for better or for worse for all his his flaws, that he genuinely cares about the victims of crime.
2: Yes, he's a good man at heart.
0: In the episode uh, of Monsters Brawl, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, is going on to him about how they'll never convict him because he's a nice, clean-cut Stanford student, and the guys he killed were a bunch of drunks, homeless drunks who didn't matter at all to society. And, and, and of course, McNorris, you know, is kind of, you can tell he's almost internally flinching because he's a drunk, too, and he knows that he's just not homeless yet. Um, but in this episode, he's actually talking about the victim, potentially his victim, like he's just a homeless drunk who doesn't matter to society. And it's like, okay, like, so I guess a bit of a heel face turn on that one, but I, I <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, like they just need, like, they needed him to try to cover up the crime because that would make the episode more exciting. But to me, it kind of just fucked up the character for me.
2: It didn't feel like the character we'd come to know.
0: No, they're just, ha- and uh, yeah, I thought they got some things right about, like, how scary it is to black out, you know, and, and not know what you did last night. But other than that, this was, this was pretty bad character assassination. And then the worst part came at the end, uh, when all the detectives have figured out that McNorris is hiding something, and they take in his car for testing. He doesn't volunteer. They have to take it from him. And they uh, all surround him and start telling him about how the B-plot, where... Um, a guy was found tied up and an old guy was found tied up in a house. Uh, turns out it was a care of elder, uh, a situation with elder care abuse. And they tell him that guy was tied up because he had previously gotten out, stolen his son's car and then accidentally hit the, the homeless person. So McNorris was actually innocent. He had hit a dog.
2: See that, that's the thing about this show. They want to tease you with the idea of the characters going in dark places, but they never quite do it. You're supposed to think, well, maybe Fearless really will kill his child molester. Nah, he doesn't. He's too nice of a fella. Maybe McNorris really does kill a homeless person. Nah, he's too nice of a fella. It could never happen.
0: And I think that, with that in mind, that is basically the issue with the series finale, or I'm sorry, the season finale, "Lost Child," where we find out more about Joel's situation with his wife. That think about that that trend of no consequences, and and we're gonna we're gonna see that here too. Hit us there is a completely insane something that would never happen um internal affairs investigation into Joel about uh the fact that the autopsy report for his child who died has gone missing uh the second autopsy report that he requested but has apparently never read um and and so tom goes undercover seemingly for the ia which in this in this in this universe the ia i mean like one thing that pissed me off about this is like I mean, the IA is supposed to make, you know, ideally that maybe people facing consequences internally for bad acts. Everybody treats the IA in this like they're like the fucking Nazis. I mean, like, it's it's people are not quite, but practically spitting on IA people in the hallway in this. And it's like, what the fuck? So... Yikes, I don't, I mean, like, I'm sure this, I'm sure IA people maybe get a side eye or, or whatever from people who don't want to be held accountable for anything. But, like, it, this felt so over the top as to be just ridiculous. And um, in, the, in this case, so uh, Tom seemingly goes undercover and is spying on Joel. And everybody else is trying to help Joel and his wife deal with the trauma. And basically... In the end, uh, Tom is actually tricking the IA. He actually hid the he stole the file from Joel, who actually had stolen the file. Hides it in the IA guy's office. The IA guys for some reason named Trumper, so make of that. Make that. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, but um, and so Tom, you know, was vindicated in the eyes of his fellow cops. He's not a snitch. And Joel reveals that he's actually never read the second autopsy report. And he, the reason is because he's scared uh, that his wife killed the baby.
2: He's scared that he killed the baby, and his wife is scared that she killed the baby. Guess what? Neither of them killed the baby.
0: As the psychiatrist guy from the Coyote episode, who's helping them in this one, says, "You know, your baby got a dealt a bad card, and so did you. The baby had an aneurysm, which is which is obviously very sad. But you know, again, it's kind of like I'm not saying." Like, every choice in the show has to be so something that like will ne- leave no ripple or scar or anything on the characters, you know, like, and it doesn't have to be that they literally killed their baby, but maybe one of them was really tired and put the baby on its stomach, which is, you know, maybe a bit of a, of an increased risk for sudden infant death syndrome. And they really regret that, but it's not clear if like that actually did anything or if it was, you know, something else that was going to happen inevitably. Like, you know, like when you're every when every fucking resolution is just basically like, oh, don't worry about that. That won't matter again, ever. It's just kind of makes everything lose its meaning.
2: That's it for season
0: one. What is your take on this first season of the show? You you started out with some theses. And what do you feel like was born out?
2: Uh, the show had potential that it squandered. What about you?
0: Uh, The show had really great potential. I really felt I liked a lot of these characters. I thought a lot of the performances were excellent. Uh, McDonough, Williamson, uh, Wahlberg, you know, a a lot of, and not just them, a lot of people did a really great job. And you could tell that there was love and thought put into the show. And I really always appreciate that. Um, generally though, yeah, it just felt like it never quite clicked. And I would have loved to see them go more with the nonlinear storytelling. Cause that was such an interesting facet of the pilot and it became more simplistic and more simplistic. And, you know, first it was nonlinear. Then it was more of like, we're just going to see it from a bunch of people's perspectives in order. And then it was just kind of like, we're going to do an entire episode. That's just about fearless. And it was kind of like, okay, but like, that was kind of an interesting thing that you could have kept going with.
2: So do you regret spending 18 hours of your life watching Boomtown and spending thousands of hours of your life talking about Boomtown?
0: No, I loved it. I mean, like, listen, I'll always have a, I, I, I have a, I have a soft spot in my heart for the, for this show,
2: for sure. Are we going to go on and subject ourselves to season two?
0: Oh, fuck yeah. Apparently season two sucks. I'd say my final thoughts on Boomtown season one are just that, uh, while this show certainly had some dynamite elements. By the end of this season, it really began to feel more like Bust Town.
2: Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore. And at Mystery to Me Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.
2: And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at Mystery to Me podcast at gmail.com.
0: We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T O. Thanks, Thanks so much for, much for listening. listening.